1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe All Show podcast today on the pod. Could the Stanley Park train be running by Christmas? We'll have the latest. Plus, right turn on a red light with pedestrian deaths rising. U.S. cities are considering a ban on the practice. Could we see the same right here in B.C. Plus, are the rumors true? Could a major Vancouver developer be going down because of high interest rates, poor condo sales, and high debt? We'll have the latest on Vancouver's real estate bloodbath. And would you pay a monthly subscription fee to Facebook so it wouldn't sell your data? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Joining me now is uh, contributor Jerry Ray judson How are you?
0: Oh, I'm not so bad, thanks. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. How was your weekend?
0: It was good. It was good. It was all right. Yeah, I think. I went to Ikea. It was a good time.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The one in Richmond?
0: I did. I went to the Richmond Ikea. You
1: survived the Ikea. It
0: wasn't actually that bad. The rain scares people, I think. Oh, ah, okay.
1: Uh-huh. That's the big, well, it's a big one. No, yes. They're the big ones. Yeah. I yes.
2: Know. They ran out a, a
1: few years. It's massive, I know, but they're so well organized over there. Isn't oh,
0: 100%. I just, <laughs> I'm not going to say it. I feel like it's the pre-holiday mess in there. It was yeah. interesting, but it was cool. I got what I went for and nothing more, nothing less.
1: You went in, you had a mission, you did, yes, you got the heck out. I did. Good. Right. It's, you don't want to get stuck on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon, not a Kia or a Costco or oh any, God. any, uh. Any big, big outlet, because God, it's no. the opposite of happiness. It's
0: the opposite of happiness. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's what we're
1: talking about today.
2: Yes. In fact,
1: you and know, I we were talking during the break, uh, I remember reading on spirituality, and that's a wonderful thing, but mm. the spirituality and, and the desire to, to do better, to be present, to be happy, it's a $4 trillion business now globally
0: capitalism Trillion. gets gets in there every <laughs> single place you
1: look. This is But it speaks to people's desire to focus on the fundamentals. Absolutely. Well,
0: right? Absolutely. I liked it. So this company that I'm going to tell you about is called Small Bits of Happiness mm-hmm. and uh it's a really multifaceted thing. It's very cute. They have a bunch of TikTok content at Small Bits of Happiness. There's videos reminding us to find happiness in the small things like going to the bookstore or making sure your room is clean or having a little bit of a sleep in. It's like very cute little tips. They do happiness pop-ups. They've got happiness quotes. They have a podcast. It's all very impressive. So, I spoke to the CEO, Mercedes Corngut and COO Anastasia Corngut, their sisters. They're from Calgary, and you're going to flip when you hear how
3: old they are. I'm 15. I'm 13.
0: 15 and 13. Okay. And you have started a business on the on the brand on the brand of happiness and and fostering happiness. So how did you even start this this company of yours?
3: So we started um about a year and a half ago because as two teenagers, well, I was 13 and sister was 11, but I kind of still feel like she was living vicariously through me. At that point in time, because we were both kind of struggling and we were feeling quite sad and stressed and unhappy, Um, and we noticed that a lot of our friends and peers felt the same. And we started to look for the small good things that happen in every day. And then we decided to kind of share them on social media, where a lot of teens spend their time. So we shared like happiness hacks and funny videos and fun facts, just to kind of boost their mood while schooling. And since then, we've just kind of continued to grow it and. Yeah.
0: Can you tell me about the growth of of the business from from posts on social media to the kind of multifaceted thing that it is now?
3: When we first started, of course, we wanted to like make it accessible. We wanted to make it in a place where teams could find it and kind of give honestly anybody scrolling a mood boost, but as we continue to grow and we continue to get more feedback, we realized that we, we really needed to create something more tangible. And this led to the creation of our game mission, Small Bits of Happiness.
0: You're podcasting, you're doing experiences, there's stuff for sale. Run me through all of the, all of the stuff.
3: So we have tons of like free daily happiness content on our website, uh, smallbitsofhappiness.com. We also have some happiness products that we designed by teams for everyone, Um, And so, like I was talking about, Mission Small Bits of Happiness is our game with a 100 unique and fun and simple activities to do to feel happier daily and build happy habits and connect with other people in your life, um, which is, again, on our website, smallbitsofhappiness.com. And like you mentioned, we have our podcast, Hack Your Happiness, that we launched, like, a little bit over a month ago, which has been going really good. And we just try to spread happiness in as many different kind of dimensions as possible. What is, I'm going to
0: ask each of you individually, let's start with Mercedes. What is your go-to happiness hack for yourself to put yourself in a better mood?
3: For me, spending time with my family. Um, when I was 13, I was kind of entering a and I was like, I don't want to spend time with my family. I just want to hang out with my friends. But as I've kind of started to realize what really brings me happiness is, you know, family dinners together, going for a family walk together, just spending time talking with my family, my sister and my parents. And.
0: Yeah, connecting. Aw, I love that. What
3: about you, Anastasia? I love, love, love sleep. Like whenever I can on the weekends, I'll sleep it as long as I can. And I just love, I love doing that. And on top of that, I've done so much research into why sleep makes you happier and the whole science behind sleep and how the more you sleep, the more you can actually think clearer and make better decisions. And I find that really interesting. I definitely find that in myself that the more I sleep, I'm actually able to be happier, be a better friend and be a better person in general.
1: I got to tell you, I didn't have it. I hadn't figured out life in general at 15 or 13. I. Know, listening to these guys.
0: No, I, I, I can't. I don't. What was I doing when I was 15? Struggling with math mostly. Yeah. That's it. I
1: mean, I was sleeping. Yeah. I was doing some of that well, <laughs> thanks to Anastasia there with her. Yeah, voice. I was
0: related very heavily to Anastasia, and that I was like, I also love sleeping. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. But you know what is great is uh, at their age, uh, they understand perhaps the most important thing in life which is happiness 100 percent.
0: and they're trying to sell it well not even sell it but just they have so much free stuff that they do they just send it out to people their age and kind of it's kudos to them too for drawing attention to when even when you're 13 and 11 you can be sad and stressed being a kid up until even when you're 11 it's it's not all rainbows and butterflies life is life is stressful and it comes at you fast yeah
1: exactly jerry thank you thank you Welcome back to the show. Well, I'm not sure what to call this next segment. It was just a story that caught my eye uh, in Associated Press over the weekend. Associated Press, of course, is articles are run in thousands of websites and newspapers are, uh, uh, throughout North America and around the world. But I thought w- it was an interesting one. It was in regards to uh, making a right turn on a red light, which is very common, of course, here in Canada and British Columbia, common in the United States as well. But with pedestrian deaths rising, some U.S. cities are considering banning Uh, turning right on a red light. Now, Washington Washington, D.C. City Council last year approved a right on red ban. That takes into effect uh, takes effect in 2025. Uh, new Chicago Mayor uh, Brandon Johnson, according to the article, uh, in, in his transition plans, wanted to focus on restricting right turns on red. They haven't given any specifics yet in regards to that policy. Uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is a college town, prohibits right turns at red lights in the downtown area. Uh, San Francisco uh, leaders recently uh- voted uh, to urge there. Uh, transportation agency to ban right on red across the city. And other major cities such as Los Angeles, Seattle, and Denver have looked into the bans as well. Uh, I wanted to talk to our next guest because while it's not being considered here, I do want to talk about it. And could we see it come here at one time? Joining me now is Grant He He's a former uh, police officer working in traffic division in New Westminster and West Vancouver. He is now a forensic criminal and traffic consultant at Forensic Traffic Pro. Dot com. Grant, thank you for joining us. Always my pleasure, Jeff. I appreciate uh, you making time for us. Uh, like I said, this article caught my eye. First of all, your thoughts on the issue in regards to uh, banning uh, the, the use of right turns on a red. What are your thoughts on it?
4: Well, I read the same article, and it was uh, this particular, it was a, a, a pedestrian walking her bicycle Mm -hmm. and a lot and and it's funny because when we were kids we were all taught to look both ways Mm -hmm. before we cross a road but it seems to me that the older we get the more complacent we get as pedestrians and cyclists and we don't check both ways before we cross And, and and that's that's a that's a big problem uh even during my time uh as a collision analyst if A pedestrian would just take two seconds to make eye contact with the vehicle then. There was not going to be a collision because at least the pedestrian would go, oh, this guy's not stopping. Mm -hmm. I better not go into the road. Um, There are some intersections, funnily enough, floating around in the lower mainland that have signs erected where you can't make a right turn on a red light. Um, They're not necessarily in too heavily populated intersections, necessarily. There are some, but not a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously the problem, if you look at the downtown core there in Vancouver, um, traffic is already a disaster as it is. And if you put up these signs that prohibit a right turn on a red light, then those cars that want to make a right turn obviously can't legally until their light goes green. But of course, by the time their light goes green, the pedestrians are now free to walk and that prevents you from making a right turn. And of course, there's a lot of pedestrians that ignore those don't walk signs. Mm-hmm. So you might get one car through where maybe you could get four or five through mm-hmm. if you can make that right turn on a red light. So I I don't see it as... I don't see it as a, as a as a problem that needs to be fixed. I think it's a knee-jerk reaction. Of course, you're going to get people on both sides. You're going to get the pedestrian and the cyclist saying, no, 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 this has to happen. You're going to get advocates for vehicles that are going to say, no, this is going to create more gridlock. Mm-hmm. And I think both sides are right and both sides are wrong, as far as I'm concerned. But I don't think it's it's necessarily uh, warranted in, in a big metropolis because it'll just create even more... Uh, gridlock, and people are going to end up jumping on that right turn against the light, anyways, at the sign, and it's going to create more enforcement for the police, and the police have better things to do
2: mm-hmm. than
4: to have that added to their list.
1: In regards to intersections and injuries and death, is it more of a case in your experience uh, where it's somebody running a red or somebody just not stopping because they're going too quickly? Uh, compare that to someone making a right turn. Do you get many injuries and deaths from right turns generally in your experience? And I'm not asking for specific data here, but generally, no, no. you don't, you don't see a lot of injuries.
4: They're generally very slow speed because a person comes up and they'll they'll take, they'll take that quick look to the right. We all do it. Mm -hmm. We look left. We look left to make sure that it's free to go. And then we go instead of taking that two seconds to look right again before you go. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's like look right, look left, look right again, and then go. This is this is common sense. This is what's taught when you're driving, and again, you know, when you're learning how to drive, you're taught how to do that. Yeah. And again, when you're growing up, you're as a pedestrian, you have to look both ways before you cross the street. So. It's like everybody seems to forget the basics, both the drivers and the pedestrians.
1: And and I guess with SUVs and the popularity of SUVs are higher up. So even if if you are making a right turn, uh, there may be some challenge in regards to seeing a pedestrian occasionally compared to, let's say, 25 years ago when vehicles are probably a little lower to the ground. You're still turning. Even if you hit somebody, there's less chance of any serious injury because you're going at a slow speed. Now your vehicles at least elevate a little higher when you're hitting somebody, too. Is that part of it as well?
4: Well, and that does create blind spots, that mm-hmm. does create, and of course, I think a lot of these new vehicles, because, you know, you can, they can park themselves, they can drive themselves, you get little warning lights on your mirrors to say if someone's beside you, and and I think a lot of motorists get a false sense of security that, oh, the, the car will tell me, instead of them using their own eyes. Um, So, you know, technological advancements are sometimes, uh, you know, know, the the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, so to speak.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, according to the article, there's the Governor's Highway Safety Association. And according to their national report, more than 7,500 people in the U.S. uh, were struck and killed by automobiles in 2022, the highest number since 1981. Now, one of the article makes the assertion that, you know, people have larger vehicles now like pickups and SUVs. Um, what do you think is the cause of that in your mind? And have you seen similar similar sort of numbers here in, in Canada?
4: I think it's a lot of complacency, like I said, on mm-hmm. both sides, uh, both drivers and pedestrians. But keep in mind, back in the 40s and 50s, when cars were absolutely gargantuous and they had seven-foot grills and they weighed 5,000 tons, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, not, not a lot of pedestrians survived getting no. hit by cars back then. And you're seeing a return of that now because, yes, the vehicles are, are – they're, they're so big right now. The, the the trucks and the SUVs, they're they're huge compared to even 30 years ago. I, mean, mm-hmm. I had a what, – what did I have? A Plymouth Voyager. That was huge back in the day. That's nothing now.
1: Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I also find coming to downtown uh, from the suburbs, you have to be extra cautious downtown. Never mind – uh, just the, the one-way lanes and pedestrians, you add to that cycling lanes, add to that uh, people on scooters now. I, you have to actually worry more even as a pedestrian <laughs> walking around. You don't want to get run over by one of these uh, scooters. So it's, it it really does require just, as you say, really being very focused and, and and making that extra effort to make sure everybody is safe when you're driving or even walking, I guess, these days downtown.
4: Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, obviously, I go to court quite often in Vancouver, and it's an abomination down there with, with, with the pedestrians are, are, are disregarding the, the, the wait signals, so they're preventing vehicles from turning right. Then you've got vehicles that are cutting the pedestrians off because they're trying to get through the light. And then you've got the, the e-scooters, and you've got the couriers on their bicycles, and it is a complete nightmare. Yeah. It is a complete nightmare. I'm surprised there's not more fatals quite honestly yeah no you're absolutely
1: right and there is a debate right now in the city of wanting to have more red light cameras as well uh in regards to uh some some of the things that you've brought up uh, and there's a debate about cost and everything else we'll we'll save that for another day but i really appreciate your time today grant
5: it is always my pleasure hear that believe it or not summer is just around the corner
1: nowadays when you're reading, listening, or watching the news, there's a lot of chatter about housing and the real estate market. A lot of the time, a lot of our time is spent talking about the impact of high interest rates and the impact they're having on the average homeowner or even small time investors who are looking to renew. We don't spend a lot of time talking about developers, big developers, some of them maybe even household names here in Vancouver. We sometimes view them as the big boys. They can carry the debt, they've got deep pockets. Uh, at times they're even mocked uh, by commentators as well, but they do play a significant role in our housing market here. Uh, they build these homes, they provide and supply our region with homes, all types of homes, single family homes, condos and townhouses. Now earlier this year we heard of one developer who had to restructure due to $700 million in outstanding debt. Recently there have been significant rumours on social media that another domino was about to fall. Another well-known local developer uh, some have said is barely hanging on. Now rumours are rife. I want to say that up front. I I won't uh, get into speculating about which developer or what might happen. But I do want to know what is going on in these companies. Deal with unprecedented increase in interest rates and a flat sales market at this particular point. Joining you know me mean? now to talk about the issue is Michael Geller. He's president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, planner, and a real estate consultant. Michael, thank you for joining us today.
6: Well, I think you invited me because you know that 40 years ago, my <laughs> company, NARA Developments, went under. Mm-hmm. And we, at the time, were one of the major companies, along with Dayon and Community Builders. Mm-hmm. But... 21% interest rates 21% for some of your listeners who can't imagine that that's what we were paying on loans and eventually we couldn't handle it so what what
1: is going on in the boardrooms of these companies at this particular point each one's going to be a little, each one's going to be a little different uh um, in the broader conversation but what is going on in the boardrooms as they deal with the issue of debt probably of uh flat sales potentially Uh, And then, of course, you have the broader
6: uh, issue of interest rates as well. What are they thinking? Well, there's no doubt – that the interest rates today, even though they may be in the order of, well, prime, is around just over 7%, which is a big number relative to where it was three or four years ago. But there's no doubt that companies are struggling to balance, on one hand, the need to take on projects because you have a machine that you need to feed. You Mm -hmm. have employees. You want to keep them working. You don't want to lose them, especially if you've got your own construction group. And on the other hand, worrying about whether or not these higher interest rates are going to deter certain segments of the market from buying. Um, are most
1: companies just waiting now? If they can carry the debt and say, we've got to wait for six months, eight months, 12 months, whatever it may be, we're going to ride this out before
6: we decide where to put our capital, our dollars. It makes a big difference when they bought the land. If you bought the land a long time ago and if you have rather modest holding costs, then it's easier to wait. than if you bought the land at top of the market, you've got a lot of debt on it at a very high interest rate because most lenders will not give a developer more than 50% of the value of that land as a loan. Mm -hmm. That makes a difference as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Is the high end of the market gone right now? No, I wouldn't say it's gone, but there's no doubt that the high end of the market was associated with a lot of foreign buyers, especially those extremely expensive penthouses and upper floor units. Mm -hmm. And having a ban, not just a foreign buyer's tax, but an actual ban since January of this year on foreign buyers getting into buying real estate in Canada, that's made a big difference especially for, the, for certain segments of the market.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't want anybody to go bankrupt. I know sometimes there are folks that um, revel in the gossip because I always view these companies, if, at the end of the day, there's people working there. They've got bills to pay. They've got mortgages to pay. They are rent to pay. Um, but do you believe that we could see perhaps one or two high-profile companies, or not even high-profile, but just larger companies going down?
6: Well, I'm afraid so. I think we will. I mean, the real estate market is very cyclical. As I say, 40 years ago, we were in difficulty in 2010, Mm -hmm. just before 2008. That was a difficult time for people. The interesting thing, though, is over time, real estate invariably goes up. (laughs) And so to those people wondering, you know, should I buy? I can't guarantee whether or not the price next year will be higher or lower but I can guarantee that in 20 years, the price will probably be higher. Mm. And so that is an aspect of it. Now, I think if we're going to be honest about it... it's a sad irony that at a time when governments are looking at how to make it easier to get approvals and making zoning more flexible, a lot of developers are struggling to arrange financing for projects. The other problem they're facing is that for a number of years, municipalities have got used to getting payments from developers, what we call community amenity contributions Mm -hmm. to finance City Hall and... uh, and and that in itself is part of the problem. Uh, so let's touch on the
1: uh, on the former for a second. I think it was a Globe and Mail article a few weeks ago. Said fourteen thousand condominiums weren't weren't going to be built, and I think a lot of them are just stuck in planning, or more so, the financing just isn't going to be there. The business plan doesn't work, and I'm going to assume Vancouver's maybe not at that number, but pretty close in yeah. regards to what's sitting there that just doesn't make fiscal sense. Number one, do you think some of these plans uh, at the end of the day? could also be helped if the municipal governments held back on some of these, these development cost charges and some of these other uh, fees? I mean, c- could those push the projects into getting built or is it just a question of, Right now, it just doesn't work. It doesn't matter what the municipal governments are going to do.
6: Uh, Dan Fumano, the Vancouver Sun, did a story a couple of weeks ago about three major developers, big boys, who are asking the city to defer over $50 million in community-manity contributions. Mm -hmm. And I suggested to him that, sure, I'm always – appearing to be on the side of the developer. But looking at it from government perspective, I thought it was wise for the city of Vancouver to agree to a deferral As to when those payments were made, because had those projects been going forward now, those developers would never have agreed to the 50 plus million dollars. There's no doubt that we have become so dependent on developers' contributions to finance growth and to finance other aspects of City Hall. That's a big part of the problem.
1: Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, our guest is Michael Geller, president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, planner and real estate consultant. We're just talking about rumors that continue to float around this city about major developers in trouble. And like I said, I'm not getting into specific names and they are just rumors. Um, But there was, of course, a conversation earlier this year about uh, one of those developers needing to restructure $700 million in debt. Um, It is a challenge out there. I know uh, if you're um, just having to renew your mortgage, you don't want to hear about big developers. And I get that. But uh, these developers Developers also help with the supply in our city and we do need to build more housing as well but call me on the open line um, one of the things i did throw out is that you know should we be the cities be maybe pulling back a little bit on those community amenity contributions or to defer them perhaps in regards to getting some of these some of this housing built in our city 604-280-9898 star 9898 on your cell phone michael geller is here let's go to the open line let's go to ryan in vancouver hi ryan
4: Hi, Jazz. I just wanted to mention uh, that uh, your your hometown and my former hometown of Delta, the agenda for the new council meeting is out, and it has a sixty percent increase in development charges on it that they're considering. That seems like very poor timing to, to me, at least. Phil, so would you agree? Well, I,
1: I, I think the term they're using is "growth paying for growth," uh, which is, uh, uh, and I've had the mayor uh, the mayor on the show uh, because he was pushing back on on the federal government uh, after they pulled out of an agreement with, I think it was Burnaby and Surrey. Michael, your thoughts on this? I mean, is that alone, these development cost charges or community benefit agreements are they going to be able to get some of these projects past the finish line?
6: There's no doubt that there may need to be some concessions, but there's a bigger conversation that we must have, which is how do we finance growth? Is it right to be charging the people who are buying these new homes the higher fees, and they're the ones who are paying them, to pay for growth, or should we go back to the way we did it 60 years ago, when basically municipalities borrowed money or issued bonds, Mm -hmm. they put in place the infrastructure, and then it was paid off over 20 years, but everybody paid it, both the existing residents and the new residents. The point right now is we just don't simply want to charge higher taxes to every existing resident Although there's no doubt those who bought beautiful homes for $47,000 in Surrey many years ago are in a better p- position to pay higher mm-hmm. taxes than the people buying these brand new homes.
1: Yeah, and that's, I think you raise a very good point. I understand they want to balance uh, the tax uh, uh, tax burden between business and the average citizen, and they think that it's, it's too much focused on or too much of it is falling on the average citizen and with big expenses coming in the billions of dollars, they want to even that up. But you're right. Ultimately, if you pass it on to a developer, you're really passing on to the buyer at the end of the day. Uh, and that's the challenge. Let's go to uh, Steve in Coquitlam. Hi, Steve. Hi. Yeah. I was just curious.
5: Um, you're, uh, you're a person that's on there right now. is saying about uh, foreign buyers coming up and buying penthouses and stuff like that. Well, that's all true. And, if you look at – I don't know how I'm going to say this without being – Oh, anyways, I'll say it. At Loheed Mall, for instance, that whole area has been redeveloped. It's all bought up by foreign buyers. It bought up by Koreans. They bought up the Best Western that was there, and the entire property that was there, and Lougheed Mall as well, and Brentwood Mall as well, and down at Marine Drive as well. If you look at the demographics and the people that are living there,
2: mm-hmm.
5: it's not B.C., Steve. I'll tell you that right now. Everything's changed. There, You look at the stores and you look at everything. And if it's for BC, for BC people to afford to buy these apartments, mm-hmm. well, they're selling to the wrong people. Steve
2: they're Jay?
1: just going for the highest bidder. That's all they're doing. Steve, thank you for your call. I appreciate it. I mean, first of all, I think it's hard to gauge that they're all foreign buyers. They may be Canadians of Haitian descent right. at the end of the day, number one. <clears throat> number two, we sometimes forget, and I don't want to change the subject, there's a lot of local investors who buy the one condo because they've saved some money, perhaps they want to pass it on to their kids. But uh, you say there's a foreign buyer's ban. I mean, sometimes there's ways around that, and I, I'm not going to debate that. Yes, it is. But I think at the end of the day, foreign buyers aren't, in regards to the broad buyer, they're a small portion of it at the end
6: of the they're day. A small, they're a small portion, and what's often forgotten is that they'll buy units as investments, which they then rent out to somebody who's been here all their life. So And in fact, when you start to lose some of those investors, and I know there's a lot of people listening to us right now saying, I wish all those investors got out of the marketplace. If they get out of the marketplace, we won't see new projects being built. And the reason for that is the banks want a demonstration that there's a market for a project long before the construction starts. And most homeowners or potential homeowners aren't people who are willing to uh, by two or three years in advance. The investors are, so we need them. Michael Keller, as always, thank you for your time. My pleasure.
1: Let's revisit our top story. If you joined us at 3 o'clock, uh, we went live to a press conference uh, with the mayor of Vancouver, Ken Sim, and his uh, councillor colleagues where he announced that the Stanley Park train is back. It will be open uh, this Christmas, which I think is fabulous, fabulous uh, news. We all heard about, of course, um, the cancellation of that um, of that train, or at least it wasn't running for the past four years. Uh, you may also recall the ghost train was cancelled in early October for the 4th consecutive years so great news uh, but it took a lot of work uh, behind the scenes to get the train back up and and of course the promise to have it running during this Christmas. We're joining us now to talk a little bit about how they got uh, the train back running and where the city doesn't have to play Grinch it's Ken Sim he's the mayor of Vancouver. Hello Ken.
4: Hey Jazz how are
1: you doing? I'm doing well walk me through this I saw the press conference we we covered it live uh, so the the train is back. Walk me through uh, any idea what the cost is right now in regards to how much of the private sector is paying for this. You had mentioned, I think, P- Peter and Joanne Brown Foundation, the 625 Powell Street Foundation, Beattie Foundation, Diamond Foundation. I think there was a David Lyles name you had mentioned as well. Um, how much of this is the private sector? Is there any public money in this at the end of the day as well?
5: Yeah, the, the, you know, there's a little bit of public money, but we raised over $500,000. And I think uh, the actual number is just a little bit over $600,000. And, you know, I give uh, the donors uh, credit. Um, When we put the ask out there, they said, hell yeah. Um, And they were super excited. And one of the caveats was, um you know we had it open for uh christmas and mm-hmm. so you know and, and we wanted it open for christmas as well and i can tell you if it wasn't for those donors and uh, jeff stibbert he's done just an amazing amount of work uh bringing his uh knowledge to this uh, it wouldn't happen because mm-hmm. first of all it would take us forever to go through a public process to debate uh whether or not we should be allocating very scarce uh, public funds uh to the stanley park train, and then too it just would take in um You know, well, it would have taken a long time. We probably don't get the money uh, anytime soon. So this was a workaround.
1: And the train itself, would it be the same train or are you, are there plans to, some have said there might be, you know, may electrify the train one day Uh, heading into this Christmas, I assume it's going to be the the same train that we're all used to. We all love, but are there plans to perhaps uh, uh, work on the technology or potentially even new technology?
5: Yeah, you know, that's all in the future. Our concern right now and our goal is to get it open for this Christmas season so, you know, residents of Vancouver and and tourists uh, can enjoy uh, creating lifelong memories once again on the Stanley Park train, Christmas train. Uh,
1: One of the things I'm sure our listeners are going to ask, and certainly I know uh, people in Vancouver are going to ask, is how did we get here, most importantly? Um, How much of this do you lay at the feet of past councils and park boards? Who, A, either led it, um, you know, basically led this train to disrepair due to a lack of maintenance and upkeep? I mean, how much of that had to do with how we got here?
5: Well, you know, I, I don't know, Jazz, Um But, you know, we're not going to, um, as long as we're in office, we're not going to adjudicate the past. Uh, we're not going to point fingers and blame. Uh, we inherit Uh, the challenges, and the opportunities of the city, and we're going to run with it. And we're not going to take no for an answer uh, on stuff that's super important. If, uh, you know, if the current structure doesn't work, we're Mm going to bring that entrepreneurial spirit to City Hall and find ways of how we can make it work, and that's uh, what the whole team did uh, this time around.
1: I I respectfully, I, I understand where you come from, but the reason I ask this question, first of all, I think it's important for citizens to know How they have, uh, how they as families as people have missed an opportunity to take their children for um, Halloween for past Christmases as well, and that a public institution like this train owned by the public in a in public land Stanley Park, we now have to go to private sector and donors to save this train, and I think. For that reason, never the, never mind adjudicating the past, I think it's also about accountability here, is why did past councils, why did past park boards allow it to get to this disrepair, to this stage, where you as mayor and council have to go cap in hand to these donors and say, hey, can the private sector bail us out? Because past councils, the public sector, the public public government here, failed in accepting Understanding at the end of the day, being accountable to the public, because this is a public institution. So it's not about adjudicating the gas. You can call mm-hmm. it that. For me, it's a public accountability to the fact that you, as new mayor, have to go in cap in hand and go look for dollars from the private sector. I think you've got better things to do with your time, I hope. And um, we should be saying, how did we get here? Let's make sure we never get here again.
5: Yeah, um, okay, so when it comes to past councils and park boards, you know I, I, I wish I could comment on it, but I actually wasn't there. so it, it wouldn't be you know um, you know I, I don't think it would be uh, proper for me to comment on stuff that I just I did not see. I can tell you we inherited a situation where the Stanley Park train wasn't running. And you know, you, you can look at it as we're going cap and hand. I look at it a little differently. There are, there's a whole group of individuals throughout our city that want to contribute to the social fabric. Um, Of our city, and they just want accountability. So uh, we we approached people and we said, "Look, this is the challenge we have. We can debate on how we got here and you know what we should be doing, or um, let's look for a solution." Because at the end of the day, the residents of Vancouver they just want to enjoy the Mm train and they want to bring their kids there. And so I think it's great. It shows community spirit. We have a bunch, and by the way, they're not the only individuals that I've come across and we've come across. Tons of individuals who would love to contribute, big and small, like donations of twenty dollars to go to their local park, up into you know, you know, um, some pretty big sums, um, to name a few. And why, why aren't we uh, approaching these individuals and giving them the opportunity to invest in the communities? And it helps us. You know, hold us accountable and it gives a direct link to these individuals to say, well, instead of like putting, you know, donating uh, money into like a, just a, a big fund where we know, don't know where it goes. They can actually identify. Yes. This money went to let's say the Jericho Pier. Uh, by the way, that's uh, we're going to be raising money for that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, and and it, it's okay. And you know what? I think it it gives people uh, an avenue to contribute, and it also helps our city. And look, the city of Vancouver. Uh, we don't live in la la land. We have financial constraints, just like every single household in the city. And so we have to be prudent with our fis- uh, fiscal dollars. And if we if we're given an opportunity where people want to contribute and help us out, mm-hmm. we will take it. Um, And we will thank people for uh, investing in this uh, great city.
1: Well, I can see your re-election brochure now. Save the Stanley Park train. Here's my follow-up question. How do you plan to save fireworks in Vancouver? No fireworks this year for a major centre. You've talked about swagger. I would think New Year's Eve is another celebration where you should mm-hmm. have fireworks. I live uh, in the suburbs, as I like call home of the chosen people. We have fireworks out there, and I just understand why a major city like Vancouver doesn't. Uh, I'll let you answer that one. Will you have to go to the private sector? Will you be going to the private sector for, for dollars in the future?
5: yeah well, um just to give everyone context, the last fireworks they actually were technically i guess you could say uh you know indirectly funded by the private sector because the port of Vancouver, uh, which is not the city of Vancouver, they actually funded it, and mm-hmm. um you know it, they uh they were very generous um with that support, and they had every right to decide whether or not they wanted to continue with it. Uh, we found out you know sort of late in the game, so we couldn't act. But make no mistake about it, we would love for another uh, group to to step up. Um, And, you know, we'll be knocking on doors as well uh, on that.
1: My final question to you now, while all this is going on, I know there's a major review of um, uh, just of City Hall looking at red tape. Uh, When can we expect an announcement from or a report from that group that you had put together?
5: Yeah, that that announcement's coming out pretty soon, and uh, I'm, like uh, all residents in Vancouver, I'm looking forward to seeing that report as well. It will be a surprise to me, just like it will be a surprise for everyone else.
1: Mayor Sim, thank you for your time.
5: Great. Thanks, Jazz.
0: Now, the 980 CKNW and Global News Shaping VC's Environmental Future Series, presented by Vancouver Island University.
1: A better world starts here. Welcome back to the show. In a world where flames, rage, and heroes emerge, meet the unsung champions of wildfire prevention, firefighting goats. CKNW producer Corey LaTondra spoke with the owner of Vahana Goat Rehabilitation to see the difference goats can make in
7: BC's annual fight against wildfires. Fall is here. The sky is gray. The ground is wet. And summer is firmly in the rearview mirror. And boy, what a summer it was.
1: We are anticipating continued extreme fire behavior.
7: Several new fires burning near Nelson.
0: A sea of orange. Uh, West Kelowna was ablaze. Already deemed the worst wildfire season on record. More than half the country's active fires are now in B.C.
4: And
7: several new fires are burning around the province.
1: There are currently 391 active wildfires burning in our province, over half of which remain out of control.
7: More than 2,000 fires burned through BC this year, destroying almost 25,000 acres of trees, bush, and grass. That makes it easily the worst wildfire season on record. But will it just be broken next year? Surely there's something we can do to mitigate the risk, right? I mean, there must be a new way to help curb these wildfires. That sound is more than a goat. it could be part of the key to help stop wildfires across the province from spreading so easily. I talked to Kaylee Chase, owner and operator of vahana Nature Rehabilitation, about how her goats can help prevent wildfires.
2: in the last couple of years, with the the wildfires um, being so prominent, uh, they have wanted to try goats for fire fuel management, and so the goats eat all of the excess vegetation.
7: So the goats eat the vegetation, and that helps the fires from spreading. But just how much can the goats eat?
2: As you get into the fire fuel management work, we're in brush and heavier grasses, and so it can range from, um, we'll just go with 200 goats, they can cover an acre, uh, acre and a half a day.
7: And what might make the goat the right choice, well, they're built for it.
2: They have these great little triangular mouths and um, amazing, very sharp molars in the back of their mouths, and then they have a set of incisors on the bottom jaw, but they have a, a palate on the top jaw with no teeth, and uh, so they're like a deer.
7: It's not a solve, but every bit helps, and as an added benefit, the goats love it. <laughs>
2: They are so vigorous and joyful to go out and eat. They, that is what they do. And you can tell your goat is not feeling good when they don't want to eat. They're either full or they're not feeling well. But the goats love to eat, and that is such a great fit, especially for here in B.C. with so much vegetation.
7: While the program hasn't been going on long, there's already plans to keep it going.
2: Quinnell is going to be one of the first cities in Canada to start building their own urban livestock program, then the Williams Lake First Nation, uh, they have also inquired and they are interested in building their own um, program and their own livestock program. So we're looking at uh, the regenerative custom grazers over in Alberta and watching how they're using their cattle to properly and lovingly manage the land. It's coming along, so we're working on um, building the programs in other towns so that they're self-sufficient.
7: Bit by bit, or blade by blade, Kaylee's goats are making a difference in fire mitigation. Hopefully, one big enough to keep BC out of the record books going forward. For Shaping BC, I'm Corey LaTondra. The 980 CKNW and Global News
0: Shaping BC's Environmental Future Series presented by Vancouver Island University. A better world starts here. Details at cknw.com.
1: Well, recently, Meta Platform said uh, they'll be offering users in Europe a subscription plan to use Facebook and Instagram without advertisements to comply uh, with European Union regulations. Now, the monthly subscription plans for users in the EU and Switzerland will cost about 10 euros for web users and for cell phone users, they'll have to shell out about 12.99 euros. Uh, per month. Now, the EU regulations threaten to curb Meta's ability to personalize ads for users without their consent and does hurt its major uh, revenue source. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about what all this means is Jesse Miller, social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Uh, First of all, is this a good thing in your mind for consumers?
8: For consumers, the subscription based use of open Internet uh, is a bit conflicting because we want to be able to explore the Internet, some of us, with full anonymity and be able to subscribe to whatever we like. Uh, But we also get uh, equally frustrated when we think that our phones are spying on us and that everything we're receiving is a little bit too tailored. Um, So the EU does take some very progressive steps to make sure that your privacy is is protected, that uh, your tracking and the way that these companies um, monitor how you use the platform um, is limited. Uh, It's not whether it's good or bad. It's whether or not the user themselves thinks there's a benefit to them having uh, somewhat of a control over how they absorb open Internet.
1: So in regards to the EU itself, they, this is about f- Facebook and many other social media outlets and even tech generally, big tech generally, just having too much access to our data and then selling it is, and, and they want to curb that or at least give you the opportunity to say yes or no.
8: Yeah, and the EU is taking a, a very needed step to really kind of give the users a bit more informed consent on how their information is used. So, you know, you're saying, hey, if you wa- want to be part of this, um, you, you have to be able to Um, engage every user and let them know what data is collected, how that data is used, how that data may be sold, and, and again, I don't think anybody's really caring too much. It just means that their rules, regulations are something that the company has to follow.
2: Hmm.
1: Can you ever see something like that uh, occurring in Canada? When I say the EU, you're talking about 27 countries, uh, nearly half a billion people. Could something like that be coming to Canada and the US? I know our regulators, not that I'm saying they're not effective, they're probably not as aggressive as EU. EU probably leads the world and its a challenge. Uh, of big tech. Uh, do you see that coming here eventually in Canada?
8: We do. We do see more need for, for Canadians to become aware of how their information is used by companies like Meta. And the value of privacy that some of us actually see when it comes to our content is usually after something has happened uh, where we feel somewhat violated as opposed to the starting point where we open are open to becoming fully educated. So yes, Canada could actually take a very kind of progressive step as well and align themselves more with the EU than let's say the United States where the United States um, you know, we see certain calls for regulation when it comes to child endangerment, when we see calls for concerns to uh, threats to safety of the platform. But we don't usually see a large amount of Americans really caring about their privacy on these platforms, it's very much a convenience-based society and the idea of just let me access it. So it would be ideal that Canadians would actually probably take a privacy-first approach and be a bit more concerned about how our information is used by an American company this way.
1: Is this the yet another reminder that our relationship with big tech is evolving and some would say changing uh, n- not just this ruling uh, but others from uh, the eu uh, recently on this program we were speaking to a lawyer out of the united states one of many lawyers uh, who have taken on big tobacco and now uh, or asbestos and companies that were uh, you know producing asbestos and now they're setting their sights on big tech on behalf of parents and on behalf of school districts around uh, the united states the impact social media is having on children from mental health uh, to their studies is this the beginning of the big change in regards to our relationship with big tech
8: it, it can be. I think the, the, it's hard to do a corollary directly when it comes to, let's say, big tobacco or let's say firearms manufacturers in sense of safety. We can usually kind of pinpoint a lot of scientific evidence towards how a user of uh, cigarettes for 20 years was negatively affected compared to somebody who's used social media for 20 years. It's an entirely different uh, approach to the subjectivity of the effects on an individual when it comes to their experience online, how that information was collected, and what, what it meant for them as a user to be fully informed of how their experience on that platform may have been affected by their choices. See, the hard part here is that when we can say uh, cigarettes are bad, we can say we know that cigarettes are bad for everybody. What we do know from a number of studies is that it's not necessarily whether you have social media, it's good or bad, it's your use of it and whether or not you're already kind of navigating some pre-existing mental health issues that it can times exacerbate the issues that you're seeing. So within that, when we consider whether or not there's a a call to action in that regard, big tech does need to be regulated. We do need better age gating when it comes to minor children on the platforms. And at the end of the day, unfortunately, we only do that when it comes to more extreme content like pornography.
1: Mm. Do you think we'll get to the point where social media is just banned for children, those 18 and under?
8: Well, we could see bans or we could see limitations. I mean, I've been an advocate for age gating since, uh, you know, for over 15 years in this space where we have to really, really kind of engage how our children get onto the platforms themselves and whether parents are fully aware of the information their children have access to and also the information their children produce. But when it comes down to age gating in a subscription model sometimes can actually be very isolating because one, you have oversight that kind of dictates how parents then control their children's access to the internet, which one parent may say, I need that. Another parent may be concerned about, About content. But in the United States, what we've seen recently is some states are now actually passing laws where children's use of social media should actually be revealed to parents. Now, those states usually are more conservative, so they're concerned about how their children are using it, maybe around content or whether it's content around things that they may not morally agree with when it comes to the child's sexual uh, identification or whether it comes to their gender orientation. And so, in that, when you have States usually kind of calling for safety pieces. Sometimes that part is very actually blinded in that sense of let's protect kids, but now it's protecting from the bigger issues that we know exist over the past 20 years.
1: Jesse, as always, thank you for your time today.
8: Thank you, Jazz, as always.